Blog Talk Radio. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as tired as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? January 18th, 2010, Martin Luther King Day, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adults with cancer. We are your friendly neighborhood weekly social webcast, finally giving voice to nearly 5 million young adults affected by cancer. Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Well, get busy living, because the Stupid Cancer Show is on the air. Welcome to tonight's broadcast, my friends. We are here to change the world one chemo infusion at a time and share all of our collective crapness. This broadcast is a program of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation, one of the nation's leading grassroots advocates for the next generation of survivors and co-survivors. You see, it's all about us, folks, and we're bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight and sticking it to a system that's ignored us for far too long. The past three decades of cancer progress have failed the next generation. So there's no reason to think the next 30 will be any different unless change happens right here, right now. So join us and be that change that needs to happen. Hell, we invented Google, Facebook, Twitter. We kept Sanjaya on American Idol. We're going to do the pants on the ground song for the next three years, God knows. We can do anything we want. This is Generation Cancer. It is our fight and our duty to give back to our own. We have the sheer numbers, the voting power, and the influence to change those rules because remission is no excuse for cure, and survivorship is all that really matters. Alrighty, last week's show was Fran Drescher, one of our highest-rated broadcasts in the history of the Stupid Cancer Show. We featured artist spotlight Brandon Schott, Young adult survivor of germ cell cancer, singer-songwriter, Lori Madoff, the uh, no relation to, uh, what's that guy's name, Bernie Madoff? No relation at all, we promise. CEO of Cancer Schmancer, and of course, the lovely and talented Brand Drescher, uterine cancer survivor, Emmy-nominated actor, and the founder of Cancer Schmancer. Tonight's show is about charity 2.0 in the social media world with a medical spotlight doctor, Adam Dockman, a young adult cancer advocate, surgical oncologist, and concert pianist and composer, one of my dear friends. Also, Ravit Lichtenberg, young adult cancer advocate, founder, and chief strategist at ustrategy.com and a social media blogger. And the illustrious Beth Cantor, nonprofit consultant in social media and the author at Beth's blog. 
So hello, my friends, and welcome to yet another fun and exciting romp to the hand tonight. Stupid Cancer Show. And a stupid cancer welcome to all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network, coming up to you live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a 14-year young adult pediatric brain cancer survivor. Joining me live in the studio tonight, our fabulous broadcast production assistant, young adult survivor Amanda Freeman. Hey, Amanda. You're not near a mic, are you? She's not near a mic. No, she's waving Step by proxy. Step on down, Amanda. She's waving by proxy. Yeah, get the girl in the ankle brace. Got a boot on, to get over to, a cast, wires, I got the headset. Gift. I probably should have told you that you were first in the shout-outs tonight. You I think? wasn't expecting this. Yeah. Amanda Freeman, welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me once again. Joining Amanda and I will be uh, our chief cancer anarchist, Jack Buffard. Hello, Jack. Hi. Wait, Jack. I'm joining Amanda. She's not joining you. Yes, and Amanda's first now. Oh. And then you're second. And then I, I don't know who's third. Hang on a second. Let me, let me read this because I've never read this before. Jack will be monitoring our live concurrent interactive chat room, so if you have any issues with the show, take it up with him. There's a chance he just might listen. What? And, of course... No, there isn't. No. And please welcome my new partner in crime here on the Stupid Cancer Show, hailing from right here in New York City, young adult survivor, acclaimed journalist, former deputy of TV Guide, deputy editor of TV Guide. Right, I did not have a gun. Not Lieutenant Commander General Grievance. Or a badge. This is a blazing (laughs) saddle. But I I wanted both. I didn't get a rump out of that guy. Many times. Former entertainment news correspondent for the Fox News Channel, the lovely and talented Lisa Bernard. Oh, my goodness. Matthew Zachary, thank you so much. Wait, hold on a second. Hold on. What? 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 Since I'm the one who receives the complaints, the first complaint that I'm going to write to myself is, how come Lisa got applause and I didn't? (laughs) Because you don't deserve applause. You sound like my mother. All right, uh, you can get applause. Here's here's Jack's applause. Okay. Oh, what else is new? Fabulous. It's another Monday in my world. <laughs> I have to put a sh- special shout-out. We have a very special guest in the studio tonight. Um, you know her as BB127 in the chat room. It is none other oh. than my fabulous pregnant wife, Jessica Feldman. She gets her own yeah. round of applause. Yay! She's fabulously pregnant. She's fabulously pregnant, and she told me that if I stick a mic in her face, she's leaving me. So we're going to keep her sitting over there, but she'll be a in the chat room. A boy and a girl, room. I'll mention again. A boy and a girl. Twins. A boy and a girl, yes. Amazing. Yes, exactly. And what Fantastic. did she do? Um, she well, doesn't have to do anything. She's having a boy and a girl. Right. <laughs> Leave the woman alone. No, I'm rubbing her feet. I'm rubbing her belly. I'm doing everything I can. She tells me I'm involved, and I'm involved. So there we go. Well, enjoy your enjoy getting your sleep now because that'll all come to an end. In a really, few no one said that to me yet. Really? No. <laughs> Listen to me, and you'll go nowhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. So, what's been going on? It's uh, Lisa's back. That's four in a row. Three in a row. No, four in a row. She still keeps showing up. I thought it was only three. <laughs> okay. I'm already. No, but you came count. in December. Technically. I came as a guest. Yes, that's you did. Right. You that's did. right. Three officially as co-host, and I did come once before as a guest. Wow. Feels like 300. No. It <laughs> keeps dragging <laughs> on and on. Yeah. Three years? No. Uh, fantastic. This was a big, wild week. Uh, with Haiti? Well, yes. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> uh, definitely with Haiti. And uh, what's interesting is we're going to have some guests that are going to talk about social media and, boy, what has happened with Haiti in terms of the money that was raised through texting and what Google's doing with widgets and all, kind of things, all kinds of things. So that'll be interesting. But... Um, you know, you hate to see any young person diagnosed with cancer, but American Idol contestant. That's right. Justin Williams. Matt, Jack, why don't you... Chair. Uh, and oh. Jeff, Jack's got a big <laughs> My booty in your way? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> I got some junk. Uh, Justin Williams, adorable yeah. guy, great voice, and he was, as Jack put it, uh, as Jack tweeted, 
rocking the stupid cancer wristband. He was. On he Idol. was. I, I'm sitting in bed with my wife watching the show. Actually, I texted Jack to say that the next guy coming up on the show, they promote him in, in advance before the commercial. He went through cancer. I'm like, Jack, check out American Idol. Which you were know already watching. I was, I was watching yeah. it. And I, I told you I wasn't, but I was. But I'm sitting here watching, <laughs> watching the show with Jess in bed, and literally, like, I'm like, is he what? What's on his wrist? Is he, is he wearing our wristband? Yeah. And he was totally wearing our wristband. Wild. It's fantastic. Yep. Yeah. I was like out of my gourd. It was incredible. You were, you were, you called me and you said you're kvelling. I was why kvelling. You, why don't you explain what that means to some of the non-Yiddish listeners out there? Kvelling, K-V-E-L-L-I-N-G, is Yiddish. For glowing with pride and joy. Nice. Oh, I've I've and been cavelling on St. Patrick's Day many times, but no one's ever used that word with me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and there was other uh, sort of in celebrity news. Uh, Michael C. Hall from yes, Dexter, Dexter, and also from Six Feet Under. Before that, fantastic and Six Feet Under, both shows, and he just won a Golden Globe. He did win a Golden Globe. Yeah, good for him. He looked yeah. good. Well, he was sporting a little beanie. Yeah, looks good. <laughs> well, he's post treatment now, right? He he held off he on. As far as I know, he's post-treatment. Right, right. Yes. I left a comment on uh, a blog that featured, you know, Golden Globe stuff, and under his picture, a lot of people were sending him good wishes. And All right. He I, actually said, because, you know, it's interesting, I wondered if he, he, he came out and said that he announced right before award season in the Globes, because obviously he wanted to show up, and I wondered if he was actually tipped off that he was going to win, because a lot of times people don't show up at those award ceremonies, right. although they do it. A lot of people go to the Golden Globes. But if they're not going to win, you know, it's often not a big deal. Right, plus if you're recovering from cancer treatment, that's the last thing you want to worry about. Well, certainly. Um, so he may, I wondered if he knew if he, he was going to win, and he made the announcement, and uh, he looked great and sounded great. And so yeah, all the, lympho- all, the, all, all the lymphoma people look great when they just finished treatment. Yeah, I guess so, except you. Well, that's what I meant, everybody else. You were, you were, you were a train wreck, Jack. I you was. still are a train wreck. I still got drunk with You're the trunk. You're a false fatter train wreck back then, but that's, that's right. okay. I'm fat with a pH. Yes, exactly. <laughs> anyway. anyway. So I, I can't help but, but think um, uh, that, that we have an interesting topic to talk about with our listeners tonight. And I'll let, I'll let Jack uh, bring this up uh, and, and get the conversation started. So for all of you out there that are listening, uh, this is something of interest to all of you. And it, it basically pertains to uh, what we talk about on the show, our banter, our relationships with our listeners, and, um, you know, it's just sort of the camaraderie we're trying to build out there. And we were really surprised to get this, uh, but I'll let Jack take it over. Okay, well, we got some feedback regarding the show, and, you know, there's a lot of listeners out there. And, you know, a lot of us, um, you know, and I say us because I'm going through a lot of the same stuff too, but, uh, you know, we have a lot of issues dealing with, you know, accepting our, our, our cancer treatments and our, our life during treatment and our lives post-treatment and such. And, uh, you know, Matthew and I certainly have a lot of fun doing the show, and we, you know, we love everybody in our community, but... Lisa doesn't like having got, fun doing the show, just you and I. No. Well, I was, no starting, I was starting off with, with the most interesting part of the, okay. uh, of right. the conversation. Oh, that part. Okay. So, you know, many, many people, uh, you know, see the bond that Matthew and I have, you know, with both uh, heading up this organization and... The fact that I do everything he tells me to do, and uh, oh, and the uh, yeah, and um, oh, is that the way it is around here? Well, it's the way that Eesh. Jess treats Matt, and then Matt passes it on to me, <laughs> and then I have no one to pass it on to. From that's there, right, so. you have no one to pass it on to. So I just bang my Thank head. Thank you. I just bang my head on soda cans. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so anyway, so you know, Matt, Matthew and I are obviously, you know, as many people know, very good friends, and you know, I love them like family. 
But that's the extent of it, Matthew. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Oh, man. But people uh, have been questioning my sexuality and my relationship Lucky with you. Yeah. And, and I'm flattered because, uh, you know, I do have some man crushes and stuff. But, uh, yeah, I was actually quite surprised because, um, you know, I'm certainly a, a big proponent of gay, uh, gay marriage and equal rights for everybody because we're all part of the same race. That would be the human race. And, uh, you know, I guess the only way to is say this, this... Excuse me, is this the very special episode of the Stupid Cancer Show? It's yeah. like the, when Arnold got with the, with the rapist. Arnold and Willis were in the rapist place. Why is everybody in the ch- am I going to start getting weepy now? Why is everybody in the chat room <laughs> laughing at me? <laughs> Sorry, Jack. Go ahead. You were, you were doing great. You okay, were, you were really doing so great. apparently, and this is, I mean, this is fine, but people in both the gay community and the... Uh, and the straight community. And the non-gay community. Thank you, Jack. <laughs> I've been questioning my sexuality. Yeah. And I think the only way, I was, I was trying to think of, a, of, of a, a, a diplomatic, political, correct response to this. And the only thing I could think of would be to, to quote the great Tone Loke <laughs> and say, this is the 80s and I'm down with the ladies. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I don't know if anyone's been quoting Funky Cold Medina in the last 20 years, but... But that's the, that's it, and you know, I was—I mean, honestly, I was surprised because of all the—you uh, know—I've I've definitely put my feelings out there regarding, you know, my my respect for the gay community and the fact that everybody should be treated equally. But at the same time, I'm flattered. You know, if anybody wants to ask me out, go right ahead. But you're an you're an equal opportunity bad date. That's true. I'm gonna. I mean, I probably wouldn't get a second date from a guy or a girl. So what's what's the what makes the difference? I would feel free to say that I was gay. But I'm not, not gay. There you go. Avenue Q. Avenue Q. Avenue Q yeah. is a great show. <sighs> so, but you, but you felt compelled to come out with that statement, though, Jack. I did, because I, I honestly... It's, I'm almost it's proud of I, I feel bad, because, you know, I guess some stuff I, I've said, you know, whether it's like, you know, bromance comments or... You know, whatever had been offensive, and but I so certainly that's, that, so that's the reason why because you think some folks have been offended or or thought that you were gay or conversely homophobic. I'm, yeah, I'm, I mean I'm, that's part of it, but okay. but see, and now the other thing, and a lot of people don't know this about me, but in my professional life, I'm a massage therapist. That is true, and, oh. and I, do, I can vouch for that. I do work part time at a spa, and I'm the only male employee other than the plastic surgeon that moonlights there, uh, you know, every other week or so, and the women there. <laughs> The women there love. Is a sitcom around that? No, seriously. <laughs> this is just waiting to be on video. <laughs> so good. I work. Uh, I work at a spa in Darien, Connecticut. Like I said, I'm the only male there, and the women there love to like critique me and pluck me and you know. Oh, what pluck you? Okay. So so there were many times like when I'll just chicken. come. I'll just come rolling in, not oh, having yeah. shaved, you know, whatever, and they're just like, oh, Jack. They're like, Jack, you got, like, we got to fix your eyebrows. We got to do this. We got to do that. Wait a minute. You, know. you had your eyebrows done. Jack gets facials and waxings, and he has product. Seriously. You're not gay, but you're Metro, dude. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of Ryan Seacresty that way. Yeah, I'm you sorry. are. Little, you're or Seacresty. So <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay, because I wouldn't date you anyway. <laughs> You had your eyebrows are waxed. Well, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is, no, one of my friends, I, I, got, I got to tell you a true story. One of my friends, my, my friend Jenny was over at my house the other day, and, you know, she gave me a hug, she gave me a kiss or whatever, and she touched my forehead, and she said, wow, you have the softest forehead 
I have I've ever felt. And I was like, well, I did work today. So what else is in the news? <laughs> no, but what was the re- was that the gist of the thing? No, there's more to it, but that was you know. I think the gist is, and we I wanted to, I wanted to leave. But there's also comments this, about. But you're walking into a trailer wreck here. Is that my my argument is that you know, no matter what you do, you're going to piss somebody off. Right. And that there's so many heightened sensitivities out there that if your goal is to please everybody, you're basically screwed. And it has never been my goal to please everybody. My goal here is to be disruptive and to challenge people, although I do take into consideration the fact that we deal with an extremely, potentially emotionally fragile population of people right, right. that are dependent on us either as role models or as you know, leaders or whatever it is. And you know, they're, they're looking up to us. And I don't want to give anyone the impression that we're here to – you know, disdain anybody or disenfranchise anybody because as young adult survivors, we are disenfranchised. And we're, it's enough that we're disenfranchised, let alone anything else that can be piled on top of that. So we're equal opportunity offenders, just like Family Guy. Right. But on the other hand, we also, you know, we love our community. Yes. And, you know. And we're dependent on it. You all listen to us. 40,000 strong now. Right. Yeah. And with that 40,000, sure, you're not going to be able to please everybody. But at the same time, you know, I guess – there were some comments that you and I have made that have have been praising some people but offending others at the same time, and we certainly don't intend it to be that way. A lot of the banter that we, we that we have on the show is on the fly and off the cuff, and yeah, Lord, Lord knows I'm not funny all the time. But uh, well, does that make me Howard, her Robin, and you Beetlejuice? Yeah, I'm Beetlejuice. <laughs> oh. Howard Stern now? Yeah. Week three, you're already saying i got to play along with the Howard Stern You're my theme. large black friend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to be whatever you want me to be. <laughs> okay. No, these so. guys have big hearts. This is fun, and we're all, we all like to laugh and have a sense of humor. And uh, as much as we may uh, make fun of anybody on the air, I can assure you that we make fun of each other ten times worse. Yeah, you guys worse. should see the abuse that goes on oh, in the yeah. hour before oh, we yeah. go on the air, yeah. oh, especially yeah. when I'm trying to eat my dinner in peace. Oh, no, no. I, I, Matt, you made, a, you made an excellent point, though. It's a, a community, a community that um, wants to laugh, although you can't always, and you don't always feel like it, and we certainly hope that no one is offended, but um, it's all kind of one big heart and group and all... Uh, all in this together. Well, now that we're all lovey-dovey. Yeah, exactly. Come here, Matt. Give me a kiss. Every moment is brought to you by Everman Angels. Be well, number one. Thank you, Johnny Everman. <laughs> Matt, would you be offended if I started massaging your hands during the show? No. I would. She, yeah, Lisa would. I, I'm would not you be offended if I, if I was rubbing Matt's hands? Oh, no. I'm not interested in seeing that. Holy crap. All right, let's get to the... Uh, okay, maybe there's a show today. It's time for the news. <laughs> let's get to the news. We got, I thought yeah, that was the news. Oh, my goodness. All right, let's Hello, get to the news. Hello, I'm here. Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Okay, during this part of the stupid cancer show... We watched Jack Buffard stammer through a series of special announcements to let off. I can't even read this. Oh, who's stammering now, B.I.? <laughs> I can't even read this. We watched Jack Buffard stammer through a series of special announcements to let our listeners know about a whole bunch of stuff you might otherwise not know about. And we don't want you missing out on free stuff, like conferences, happy hours, retreats, scholarships, free support groups, music concerts, and more. If you have something you'd like to hear during this part of the show, email Jack at jack at i2y.com. 
See, now you're cutting into my music. <laughs> anyway, moving right along. Head on over to events.i2y.com. Events.i2y.com is the official social calendar of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation. We have a couple upcoming events. Uh, we have happy hours happening in Long Island, New York, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And we have a stupid cancer taco time being held Tuesday the 26th at Under the Volcano in London, Ontario, Canada. So head on over to events.i2y.com to see what's going on in your area. Attention young adult survivors in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. The Leukemia Lymphoma Society is proud to present their Lone Star Blood Cancer Conference Saturday, February 27th at the UT Southwestern Medical Center. This is a free event with limited seating, and to register, please call the Dallas Leukemia Lymphoma Society at 1-800-800-6702. Yaks of D.C. is a young adult survivor support community made possible by our friends at Smith Farm. Join them on the first Tuesday of the month for various group events and wellness activities. On February 18th, Lisa Goldstein of First Descent will be presenting the First Descent program and showing the camp documentary at the February meetup. I will be there along with the fabulous Tamika Felder of, Fa- of Tamika and Friends, the somewhat fabulous Johnny Everman of Everman Angels, and Mr. Handsome himself, Brad Ludden of First Descent. All events are held at Smith Farm, and for more information, please call 202-483-8600 or email yaksofdc at gmail.com. Also happening on February 18th, Matthew Zachary, my heterosexual co-host, will be keynoting the I2Y Insurance Boot Camp for Young Adults. Everything you need to know, but we're too afraid to ask or too poor to consider because you're in insurance debt hell. This insurance boot camp is being held at the NYU Langone Medical Center here in New York City. Are you a young adult survivor who would like to begin an exercise program? If so, the National Cancer Institute is funding survivors. Step into motion. For more information regarding this program, contact Santina Horowitz at 401-793-8124. A research team at Rice University is investigating the positive and negative experiences that childhood cancer survivors have at work. Previous research has shown that childhood survivors probably face difficult circumstances that may make employment more difficult for them, but we aren't exactly sure what those are. If you were diagnosed before the age of 18 and are now older than 18 and working full or part-time, please let us know about your workplace experience by going to i2y.rice.edu and filling out the online survey. There's no such thing as a typical experience, and yours can be valuable in trying to find a solution. Again, the site for that survey is i2y.rice.edu. Head on over to 70k.org. That's the word 70, the letter K.org. There are approximately 70,000 people aged 15 to 39 diagnosed with cancer every year. For over two decades, there has been little or no improvement in survival for this age group. By signing this bill, you are supporting the Adolescent and Young Adult Cancer Bill of Rights to be established as a standard for care to meet this underserved population. The young adult groups that are active and running over at Cancer Care are as follows. Living with cancer, life after cancer, young adult loss of a parent, young women with breast cancer, young adult individual grief counseling, and young adult caregiver for all diagnoses and relationships. For information on these programs, head on over to cancercare.org. 
in celebration of National Cervical Cancer Screening Month, Cancer Care's Women's Cancer Program invites patients, survivors, and caregivers to a workshop on nutrition and well-being. This workshop is being held Wednesday, January 27th from 6 to 7.30 at the Cancer Care National Office in New York City. Reservations are required and space is limited. To register for this program, call 212-712-6133. Our friends at First Ascent are excited to announce their 2010 camp schedule. Head on over to firstascent.org to check out the dates and locations, as well as the date applications for each camp. Climbing camps are being offered in Moab, Utah, and Estes Park, Colorado. Kayaking camps are being held in White Salmon, Washington, Kalispell, Montana, and Vail, Colorado. Speaking of retreats, Can't Make a Dream has also released their 2010 schedule. They are offering an ovarian cancer retreat, a young adult survivors conference, a young adults conference for those in and out of treatment, a teen heads up conference, a teen camp, a siblings camp, a kids camp, a heads up conference, an ovarian cancer retreat, and a women's cancer retreat for those women out of treat, in or out of treatment that are 18 and older. For more information on all these programs, head on over to campdream.org. And finally, we have Live On Sperm Banking by Mail for Cancer Patients. Don't do what I did, guys. Mailing sperm without a Live On kit is frowned on by our federal government. For more information on sperm banking by mail, please go to www.liveonkit.com. Live Sperm Banking by Mail is made possible by our good friends at Fertile Hope, and I would personally like to send a big thank you out to the law firm of Dewey, Scroom, and Howe for clearing up my embarrassing situation with the United States Postal Service. And that, my friends, is your Stupid Cancer News. I didn't stumble, did I, Lisa? I don't think I did. Matthew, uh, back to you. I think you did all right, Stumble-Rama. 9.25 in our medical spotlight tonight. Dr. Adam Dockman is a talented surgeon caring for cancer patients in southern Wisconsin, a 15-year veteran. Practicing surgeon Adam brings a passion for relating with people to his practice every day, creator of the human factor. Adam has lectured nationally on the subject of doctor-patient relationships. Through general surgery keeps him busy. He has a lifelong love for piano music and composition, a gifted pianist, composer, and expert cancer surgeon combined into one individual. He is also the original Board of Directors Chairman of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Adam Dockman. Adam. Hey. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, my friend, my old friend. Hello, my friend, my old friend, too. My new friend. Lisa's new friend. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Adam. How are you? You don't have to be Jack's friend, though. I'm good, thank you. I'm having a very nice evening. Well, Great I am. Show so far. Thank you. We, we thank have you. the shows. You were on the show like when we first started, like in 2007, and it's it's grown so much. And I'm excited to have you back, just to you know, now that it's like professional and, and it works. So it's, it's just thrilling. Don't to go too far. <laughs> oh, I will right. point it, it was pretty lame until I got on board. Let's not push it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But, um, Jack, I like Jack. Yeah. I'm thank sorry. you. Uh, I'm a Jack fan. But for the sake of, of our listeners out there, I think it's really of a, a, like an imperative for them to appreciate your story. You are not only a cancer surgeon that saves the lives of people every day, including some young adults. You are a, and I, I can speak for this personally, you are an incredibly talented musician, composer, pianist, performer, 
uh, and and wrapped into one. I think when we first met in 2001 or 2002, so long ago, uh, we were kind of enamored with each other in a heterosexual way, just to keep in theme with where the hey show there. goes tonight. And, <laughs> um, you know, talk about, uh, you know, growing up, playing piano, becoming a doctor. That, that's got to be a very interesting uh, career parallel. Well, yeah, I mean, I grew up, I grew up basically in the 60s and the 70s. I'm 47 years old at, at this point, just for, for your information. I grew up during the whole women's liberation movement. My mother was very involved in it in Chicago, Illinois, and she, she edited a newspaper uh, called She Magazine, and uh, that, that stood for serving human equality. And she was very much into the whole uh, debate about when life began and the abortion debate. And all I knew when I was a youngster was that in my house, everybody would talk about when life began outside of the house, but in my house, life began only after I graduated from medical school. So that was pretty much just the way it was going to be. Um, I grew up with a lot of musical training, but I just had a very strong direction that I'd always be a doctor. And uh, I always dreamt of being a surgeon, even as a youngster, and uh, that's what I became. Uh, but along the way, I took lots of piano lessons and wanted to be a rock musician, uh, much like you, Matthew. Uh, Billy Joel is one of my heroes, as I know he's one of your heroes, and, um, uh, you know, you're one of my heroes now. I... <laughs> I'm an Elton John guy myself. Aww. Is that Jack? I, I grew up with Elton John. And, uh, he actually, Elton John came before Billy Joel, I have to say. He did, he I did. Was huge Elton. I was, my first concert was Elton John, 1976, with Kiki D. Wow. wow. Oh my God, I was Kiki so D. nervous. I was so nervous it was going to be my first concert. That's I was I was 13 years old, and my sisters were taking me to the Chicago Stadium. I was so nervous. I didn't know how to act at a concert. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then you saw so, how people acted at concerts, and you weren't so nervous anymore. Well, that'll <laughs> certainly throw you into the fire. <laughs> yeah. So, but Adam, did you, had there been cancer in your family? Had you been around that as a child? Yes. My, at eight years old, my dear, dear, close, close mother, my mother's mother, she was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, and uh, it was only a couple of years later that she passed away, 1970. Uh, so, and we were very close. And so, uh, from a young age, I was very interested in finding the cure for cancer, and wow. would go to the library and read the encyclopedias and look up medical things. At age eight, nine, ten years old, I was writing little notes on napkins about how I was going to cure cancer. <laughs> That's and, awesome. Right. Uh, you know, the funny thing is, I, I realized in the last year that I have really done exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, That's enviable, but you have to take that I as have a consideration. Done it. I, I, and, it, and, it, and it's come to me in a package that I didn't expect. The package is, believe it or not, it ain't, it ain't that glamorous. It's colonoscopies. I do about four or five hundred colonoscopies a year, and I probably stop a hundred cancers a year. Amazing. It's hard to say how many awesome. cancers I'm stopping, but but ultimately, when I look back, I think to myself, hey, hey, a pound of prevent. What is it? An ounce of prevention is, is better than cure. a pound of cure. And and, I'm, and so I'm part of the army that's curing colon cancer by just preventing it from happening in the first place. That's fantastic. So. 
And tell us more about uh, your music, too, because I'm looking at this um, on your website here, the Player Piano Mouse, which looks like a... Well, you, well that's, that's not my music website, but thanks for, for bringing up the Player <laughs> Piano Mouse. The it's a Player book. Piano Mouse is a, is a book. Yeah. It's, my, it's, it's a book that was published in 2008. It's a great book. And uh, it's a kid's book. But about music, and obviously, because it's a... It's, a, it's about a mouse named Melody who has a passion for music, but she's too little to play the piano, even though that's her favorite instrument. And she lives during the time of Scott Joplin back in the late 1890s. And she learns how to chew holes and play her piano roles, and she learns how to compose music on player piano roles. And so she becomes a famous composer by chewing holes in paper player piano rolls. You know, cause, I thought it was you know, my, my, me. That's a great story. Mice chew the holes in Swiss cheese, and in the book it tells the tale of how M- Melody's family members are all famous for chewing holes in something that became a famous invention. <laughs> so, yes, that's the player piano mouse. My website, uh, adamdockman.com, has uh, quite a few of my original recordings, right. and uh, you can listen to that stuff for free online. Well, actually, I wanted to listen to Bonfiglio, which is, as you know, my all-time favorite piece that you've written, and I've taken a lot of inspiration from. Uh, this is from uh, Echoes in the Canyon. Echoes in the Canyon, my first CD. Yeah, adamdockman.com. Adam, incidentally, for those of you out there that know we have benefit CDs that feature musician survivors and, and uh, influencers, Adam is on Volume 1 of the Amateur Young for the CD uh, with this very song. So uh, you can visit music.i2y.com to look at what we have out there as far as music goes. Um, but I just was so excited to be able to finally play this for our listeners out there. It's a beautiful piece. And, Jack, no comments from the Peanut Gallery. So here we go. <laughs> well, you know what? Hang on a second. It's, uh, it's fuzzy. Let me just save this. This will take ten seconds to fix here. Want me to sing to keep uh, everyone entertained? <clears throat> yeah, keep uh, sing. Uh, let's have a, a piece from uh, Avenue Q if you can do that. <laughs> I let you know, the, the the player piano mouse that you mentioned, Scott Joplin, isn't it? I remember Maple Leaf Rag being one of the. I mean, I'm not a Maple very Maple Leaf good Rag. Piano player. Right, isn't that Scott? Yeah. That's, that's, Here it is. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's that I think. That was on the Domino Man video game when I was playing. Right.
that was really good. That was so much better than the scribbling CD that I have at home. <laughs> and it's nice to hear piano music that actually keeps me awake. Oh, my God. You know, I'm, 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 I'm probably one of the few people on the planet that can play Matthew Zachary songs from beginning to end. That is true. That is true. Really? Wow. You know, he actually can play I, well, my music. My, my all-time favorite tune is, uh, is um, Recovery. There you go. Yeah, in oh, fact, nice. I love recovery because it's better than Ambien. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't write a song named Ambien. Hey, wait a minute. You <laughs> riot. Well, Adam, um, you know, we have to close, but I want to, just such a, I got to come out to Wisconsin. I, actually, I can't because Jessica will leave me. I have to stay in New York. You should come out to New York and, and come visit us. I'll be us. there. I'll be there. I'll, I'll be come there. To the I'm, I'm, I'm writing a the, new The who? Is that a I'm writing a musical, and when I'm out in New York, I'm gonna, you know, shop it around. You'll, you will hook up. Fantastic! Thank you for being on the show. Good luck. I, I'll, I'll catch up with you on the weekend. All right. Have a great rest of your show. Take Adam care. Dawkins. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Adam Dawkins, the man. He is stunningly fabulous. He is. Stunningly fabulous. What a great, beautiful music. Oh, it's it's just fantastic. And what a gift he has that he can, you know, save people from cancer with these colonoscopies. Uh, it's. It's it's just fantastic. I'm tired of running up against these really talented people on the show. I'll tell you that. These oh, I can talk less. <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right, our next guest is Ravit Lichtenberg. Works with businesses and individuals on social media, customer experience, product development, and branding strategies in the new digital economy. With 15 years of experience and academic training in psychology and business, and having tasted. The startup world and the corporate world, she started U Strategy. For the past year, Ravit has become a sought-after author and international speaker in the areas of social media branding and online trends. She recently launched an initiative focusing on providing women in business with personal tools for success. Someone who is a huge fan of ours that I only just met very recently that I'm thrilled to have on the show. Please welcome Ravit Lichtenstein. Hello, Ravit. Hello, Ravit. Hello, Ravit. We all like saying your name. Are you there? I am here. Fantastic. How are you doing out there in San Francisco? I am doing great. Thank you. And thank you for pronouncing my name so beautifully. I'm, I'm a heeb. i got to do it right. Although, I do my people a disservice? Am I allowed to call you that? What's that? No, I was talking about it. <laughs> been a lot about that tonight. You're not allowed Belling. to call me a heeb, Jack. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... Can I call you a sheep? I'm not even going to ask. There's a that. guest on the show. Let's pay attention. Yeah, let's let's. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the whole point of the show. The guest. So I was incredibly excited to get acquainted with you because you wrote a blog um, about us, and it was a phenomenal piece that we spread all around the world. And can you tell us what that blog was? Sure, sure. And Matthew, thank you so much. I am just I'm, I'm loving it being on your show. I'm honored to. Uh, kind of be part of the uh, part of the family, and I've enjoyed our conversations. And and it is just a recent thing, but you know, love goes around. What can I say? Yes, it does. It does. So the blog was ten ways social media will change in 2010. It was basically sort of ten trends to pay attention to for people who are, who are into social media. And um, you guys were brought up by a colleague and now a friend that I interviewed, Jennifer Benz of Benz Communications. I believe you're going to have her on the show. Um, next week? Yes, and she was actually supposed to come to the office tonight, but she her dinner plans ran late, and we're going to try to hook up tomorrow while she's in town. Yeah, so she's fabulous. And she, said, she said, you know, when you're talking about all this sort of what's going on and content and ownership and 
um, when we think about kind of nonprofits and so look at this kind of cancer foundation. They're doing some great stuff. And I went and checked you guys out, and from there it was basically we're hitched. So um, that's, that was fantastic to see that and to explore sort of what you guys are doing through these social media trends. And you guys are phenomenal at using social media. Well, thank you. We try. Yes. Tell, us, tell us a little bit more. Can you go into some of the things that you've written about in terms of where we'll be in, say, a year, two years, five, from, five years from now in terms of social media? Sure. So um, I can go into it. I'll also tell you that people who want to um, read more about this can go to um, Read Write Web and key in 10 ways social media will change in 2010 or to my blog, RevitLixenberg.com, and there's kind of the breakdown of the 10 trends. Uh, but in general, what we're looking at is sort of a shift. So social media has crossed over to the mainstream. We sort of know that. We know that companies have presence on social media. Go see Visa, Starbucks, um, Best Buy. They're kind of uh, examples of companies who are known for that. And even smaller and sort of more dinosaur-like companies. So that has, ha that has happened. And what we're going to see now is movement from needing to jump on that uh, bandwagon to actually using it and using social media to create action. And action, I think, is something that's super important to kind of what we're talking about, which is mobilization of crowds and finding new ways to connect people who otherwise would not have a way to connect and learn, compare notes, and drive a solution out of that. So in a way, democratization of content, democratization of media, and wider access. Sort of in a, in a nutshell, a few things that we're going we're gonna to see is that social media, all this sort of Twitter, Facebook, blog, all these tools, they're not really an experience, they're a tool. They're going to get aggregated more into a holistic experience. So whether through a platform that you're going to access all these things, they're going to come to you, or that companies are going to have them all hosted on their website. That's one thing that we're going to see. Mm. One of the fantastic things about this is that when you search for a key term, um, let's say colonoscopy. You're going to get the results from Twitter, from Facebook, from blogs, from online, all in one place, and you're going to be able to filter through that. Now, if you take that to the next level, people who are looking for specific information about experimental medications, about research, about specific diseases, are going to have much better access to that information all aggregated in one place. So the business intelligence of social media, the business intelligence of sort of crowd um, spoken language, all that is going to come to us much better, much, much faster. What that's going to lead to is the ability of people who otherwise did not have any ability to do something, to take action, to take that action. So if in the past some information and ability to change things was in the hands of those with the power, large companies, large corporations, government, that is cascading down to the hands of the people now. So that's, that's to me, extremely exciting, having control over our own destiny so to speak, and especially when it comes to health, is so critical. Right. Let me, sorry, you got to leave. Oh, I just going to say, just, you know, coming into the show tonight on the radio, somewhat related to that, uh, and we're talking about, when you talk about not big companies, but nonprofits, or right now uh, crises like Haiti, uh, with Google putting a widget out there where you can find missing people for Haiti, mm. and sort of aggregating all that information and typing in keywords. Um, but in terms of your point of putting the power in the hands of people out there, yeah. uh, that's certainly a great, uh, well, yeah, the, the, the best use of social media that we can, we can all uh, think of, I would imagine. Absolutely. And, and the Google thing, right, it's another trend, geotagging, the ability to associate a person with a location or an action with a location, super important. 
Well, let me ask you this then, Ravit. Is it is it almost have we reached the point where you you cannot be uh, you cannot engage in a successful relationship with your consumers or in our case your constituents and beneficiaries without a social media strategy? You know, that's a really good question. So that kind of brings us back to what is social media. And social media is basically tools, right? It's basically channels. And it so happens that with Web 2.0, the way that people, consumers, customers, constituents, interact with others right now is increasingly on social media. So that is what in a kind of our target market, when we talk about kind of the young adults, we're doing a lot of things on social media. Sort of email is being left to the wayside while we're doing things on Facebook, some on Twitter, whatever it may be. So we have to meet people where they are, and this is where we spend time right now. So in order to have any kind of outreach, any kind of conversation, meeting people where they are and addressing sort of the psychology of behavior and how it's shifting with social media, I believe that to our um, age group, to our demographic, you definitely need to have a social media strategy. And, again, I mean, we're obviously our cause is young adult cancer. Do you find that when it comes to the health sector, it's more difficult to successfully implement a social media strategy? Or have there been sort of proven examples of real measurable impact? Because I don't really believe it's something that can or should be monetized, but clearly, you know, groups like WebMD or patients like me are doing just that. How do you feel about that? So I think, you know, I, I was born in Israel. It's a universal um, medicine, universal health care country, like many of the European countries. U.S., I believe, is, is kind of one of the few who are not uh, in, in the industrialized world who are not um, using that model. So I think more access, more transparency, more ownership to the patient is something that is critical. Now, WebMD is one example. There are a lot of startups who are trying to harness that power using uh, mobile applications, for example, using um, Web 2.0 style of applications. The problem is the regulations. The problem is kind of cutting through those um, the, through the red tape and climbing these these gardens, the, the walls that surround the gardens of whatever health insurance is. I sometimes feel we need kind of an insurance to protect us from our health insurance. So that's sort of the things that are, that are the barriers to success there. But I think all that is changing. So I think companies, um, insurance providers, um, healthcare providers, all all these providers are sort of changing their interaction with their constituents and are trying to make things more open. Um, you can take kind of example from the administration and using open source model to help kind of harness um, information across different channels and bring that together. That's going to cascade down at the same time kind of the two-prong approach. What's going to come up from the kind of grassroots operation are small ways to help us manage our health and let companies manage in small pieces um, content across different channels to kind of give access to consumers to their own health information and doctors and so on. Well, that also opens up. I mean, I was on the board of the Google Health Advisory board, Council or whatever back in 2007 and 2008. We were strategizing what might be a good product for them to launch to the market. It's had its ups and downs, but I think it set a real precedent. I think what this really comes down to, and this is another conversation I've involved with with a, a major national market research survey, it's all about trust. Mm. Uh, you and I are, are Gen X, Gen Y, Millennial, and I mean, I'm less Millennial <laughs> than Gen X, Gen Y, but we are a generation that is far much more disenfranchised and distrustful and, and skeptical mm. of the system, uh, you know, and we're a population that is so in desperate need of trusted sources and content and credible clinical information. How, how could that possibly, I mean, there's a big question, I have to answer the whole thing, but 
can social media engender some degree of conciliation there? Sorry, specifically around trust? Around trust, yes. Yeah. So I think, right, the proof is in the pudding. So I think what's, what's happening with trust is that people raise flags much sooner. You can see complaints about companies and, and you know, the um, the fail whale, the AT&T sucks, the honest and authentic expression of frustration, of experience, becoming very public, things that people could not do before. We used to have to write letters to customer service or um, to, to the complaint center of whichever organization. Now we do it publicly. I believe that as we see companies taking action on that, our trust will grow not so much in the company, but in our own ability to impact, to have an impact, to influence change. And with that trust, companies will change the way they engage with us as consumers, as con- constituents, and trust will then grow. Probably, you know, it will be a different experience to the next generation, right, to, uh, to, the, to the, uh, those who are growing up with computers and social media kind of in their laps. Right. Um, but I think at that point it will look differently. For us, it will be about trust in our power first. Which, What's uh, all you, Lisa. Oh, well, I'm coming from a, um, a very basic perspective here, not of a Luddite, but of just somebody saying, uh, can we go too far in the digital world with all of this? I mean, if, there, if we are, um, uh, can we be too in, invested digitally in this if we ever ca- came up against uh, Y2K, not I2Y, but y you know, <laughs> say, for, say for instance? And what's, what's kind of the, the backup plan? So what is too far? Well, I just think if we're if if we're too tethered to uh, be plugged into all of this, and at a, you know, and we're and we're too reliant on uh, essentially basically our laptops and in in, right. in in connecting with the information um, that we need and that we want and and is vital to us and is becoming more and more vital to us um, in this form. Yeah, you know, I think. Something will need to change in that relevant information is the one that will be delivered to us. So right now there's a lot of um, just tons of content out there. A lot of it has nothing to do with what we're looking for or it's not um, trustworthy or it's just people kind of speaking. But there's going to be a way to filter through that and give us really what we're looking for, what can, what can be meaningful to us. So the ability to deliver to us real-time meaningful information that we can act on is going to help sort of reduce the dependency on this kind of we're, we're in a mid-stage. Um, that will reduce our dependency. At the same time, what's happening with social media as a, as a tool, it's also helping to drive engagement offline. So we're seeing a lot of online. I think the last year was just the online frenzy. And now we're seeing a lot of innovations in the space of connecting online and offline. So meetups, for example or using uh, location-based information to bring people to a certain place together as a group, um, those things are going to start coming back up. And as everything, you know, kind of the convergence and divergence of new experiences, people are so are going to get so saturated with that online experience, just like you described, mm-hmm. that they're going to look for creating those meaningful relationships again offline. So it's going right. to be that, that back to that convergence of, okay, so back to the real authentic person-to-person experience. Which brings me to my, my our last question. I'm sorry. These, these segments go so quickly, and we'll definitely have to have you back because this conversation is really relevant to, to our generation, is that you are a young adult, and you're a young adult. You're an entrepreneur. You're living in, like, the, the Shangri-La of, <laughs> of entrepreneur land 
out there in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. You, you meet with probably the, the smartest people out there that are doing the game-changing stuff that's going to shape our culture. What's in it for young adults uh, when it comes to being charitable? There is a recent study that I read that our generation, even though it has less disposable income from our parents, is disproportionately less charitable unless it is a sort of a slacktivist, one-click solution, hmm. like this texting to Haiti thing. Raise so much money, because all you do is you do something from your couch. These couch, couch, what, couch potato slacktivists right. is the term I think I've heard. How, how, how is that reconciled? And, and just to, the, to button the question is, you know, we are the only, I wouldn't the only, we're one of the lar- largest and loudest cancer organizations in this country, specifically for the slacktivist generation. What can we do to engage that culture more effectively than we already are doing? The slacktivist, I love it. Um, I didn't make that word up. I can't take credit for it. <laughs> it's a great word. You know, I think, first of all, we are slacktivists, and we're slacktivists for a number of reasons, one of which is that our generation is working extremely hard. So, I mean, that's from my perspective. There might be stats that show otherwise, but our generation is working extremely hard. The kind of the environmental stresses are, are extreme, and frankly, we are a little bit, like you said, you know, we, we kind of look for the easy way out. So if we can sit on a, on a, on a sofa and text something, that's much better. So the thing is, how do you make things really meaningful to us? Where it gets meaningful is that is where it, it's, you know, some, it hits us on a personal chord. So a lot of this is about finding the right people that whatever we're talking about, whatever we want to promote, really touches them, creating those passionate stories again, um, helping them see how whatever they're doing has return, specific, tangible return, promoting the engagement. There's a lot of psychology behind activism and behind motivating teams to do something. So, um, for example, uh, can I do a quick, uh, a quick experiment here? Sure, uh, sure. All right. So, Matthew, I know that you love Ashton Kutcher, and you really wanted him to know I've about been Yes, he does. I've been out. I hear about it all, all right. the time. All the time. And, you re- and I think it was in our first conversation, and you really want him to know about I2Y and what you guys are doing. So, everyone on the call, all the listeners who have a computer in front of them, if you go to twitter.com forward slash Ravit underscore you strategy, which is my Twitter account, I have put a tweet there to Ashton Kutcher that says, help us promote I2Y Foundation dedicated to helping young adults impacted by cancer. And there's a link there to the, to the foundation. If you guys just go there and retweet, as it's saying, let's see the power of crowd immobilization. Let's see how you know, a small act of retweeting can get a response. Let's see how much we can create a buzz around that. So that is an example of you know, when we really care about that and we create some kind of a ripple effect, that might come back to us in ways that are surprising, even in a small little action, because this group on the phone really cares about the cause. Well, there you go. Sounds good to me. Fantastic. We're this on Bitly. We're, we're going to track statistics. All right. Well, definitely uh, I will put that out there once we're off the show to everybody that I know. But uh, thank you so much for coming on. I look forward to meeting you. I, I can't tell you how appreciative we are of your belief and support of what we're doing. And you're a brilliant mind, and brilliant minds don't go to waste. So keep doing what and you're doing. And she'll come back when Ashton is a, is a guest. Yeah, we'll have you on with Ashton. <laughs> Which could be guest. next week. Right, who knows. <laughs> I mean, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. All right, Ravi, you take care of yourself. Ravi Lichtenberg, everybody. Thanks a lot. All righty, and that brings us to our last guest, 
tonight, and I will start playing this song. Which is dangerous. Beth Cantor is the author of Beth's blog, How Nonprofits Can Use Social Media. One of the longest running and most popular blogs for nonprofits, and I can attest to that. Beth has authored chapters in several books, including Managing Technology to Meet Your Mission, a Strategic Guide for Nonprofit Leaders, edited by NTEN, both published in 2009. She has presented about nonprofits and social media at some of the leading social media industry conferences, including O'Reilly's Graphicking, Social Patterns, Nomadex, South by Southwest, Blogger, and PodCamp. Please welcome, a real honor and a real privilege, Beth Cantor. Beth. Hello, Beth. Hello, Hello, Matthew. What a what a welcome. Well, we try to do our guests proud, and you deserve it. Oh, I'm honored. I'm honored to be here and to finally actually. I think this is the first time we've actually talked. Yeah, verbal conversation for the first time. Absolutely. In real time, live voice. I know. It's it's been a long time coming. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to have you on the show. Uh, I'm sorry we're running late, but you can hear we have incredibly compelling conversation. Oh no, I was just riveted with uh, Ravit. <laughs> She's fantastic. So I, I've obviously been reading your blog for a while. We've been in touch for quite a while, and you've even talked about us in some of your posts. You have 300,000 people on Twitter. You're a woman of influence and game-changing thought leadership, if I can completely continue to stroke you. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I, I'm really curious to hear your story as to how you got into this, what compelled you to get into this, and and how you've gotten such a response from really absorbing these trends and how to spit that back out in with value. That's a great question. You know, my background is the same as yours. I I was a music student. Get out of here. <laughs> Get yep, I was a classical flute major and I thought I'd uh, sit first chair in, you know, the Boston Symphony or New York Philharmonic, but I guess that didn't work out. That was like 30 years ago. Uh, I guess I'm the old person here. Um and so I went off and worked uh, for arts nonprofits, and midway through that, um, about 15 years ago, I got totally obsessed with technology, and I was sort of at the forefront of when nonprofits started to discover the web in the very late 80s, early 90s, and I worked as a, a trainer and a circuit rider, and I, I put a, you know, I would visit offices all over New York State of arts councils, and I would help them with their technology. Um, whether it was crawling under the desk and fixing their local area network. I don't do that anymore. I used or, to do that too. <laughs> or help them with email, uh, developing web pages, you name it. And, and so then I got very involved in Internet online advocacy, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was a natural leap for me to be an early adopter um, and start blogging. I started blogging like in 2001. And that was because I, um, because I had to – I wanted a place to write down what I was learning so I could, wouldn't lose it, and I could easily share it with uh, the people I was working with. And that ended up being a blog, Beth's blog. And somewhere around 2003, I started um, really uh, writing on it consistently. And it was, I initially started, it was just for me, because I wanted to learn. I had this sort of desire to learn. I also started another blog at the time called um, Cambodia for Kids, and the reason I did that is I have two wonderful children who are adopted from Cambodia, 
And I started uh, writing that blog because I wanted to learn about Cambodian culture. And about 2003, 2004, I got a comment on that blog from a blogger in Cambodia, Tabrum. And I was just, this is incredible that I could actually connect, you know, person to person with people in Cambodia who were blogging and learn about their culture and even have Skype conversations to get language lessons. And, and to me, that, you know, in those early days and even today, that's like this power of social media is this sort of person-to-person connection that you can actually connect with a stranger, really, who shares your passion, shares your in, um, interests, and makes things happen. That blogger who I connected with, uh, Tal Room, uh, at the time I was writing for Global Voices, which is a blog aggregator of blogs all around the world, and I was covering the Cambodian blogging, blogosphere. And later on, uh, we, I sort of mentored Tal Room to be the um, Cambodian editor and arranged for a scholarship for him to come west for the first time, and I met him at a Global Voices Summit in 2005. Well, fast forward two years later, uh, the bloggers in <coughs> Cambodia asked, invited me to keynote their conference and to you know, teach for a week, and, um, but they didn't have any money. So at that point, I was just, this was like, I just started experimenting with trying to raise money using blogs and Facebook, and so I said, okay, I'll do a campaign, and I raised enough money to be a sponsor of their conference and get over there and teach. And I also got something like 300 technology T-shirts donated. So what drives me, how I got into it, was sort of following my interests, following my passion, which is about learning and teaching, uh, Cambodia, <laughs> um, social technology, and uh, connecting with people. And how old are your kids? And how the, Hi, Beth, this is Lisa. And how old are your kids, and are they um, connected, and have, have they essentially had an education learning about their culture through social media? Uh, through by proxy from their mother, <laughs> yeah, they've had more of an education about philanthropy and and giving. About philanthropy, yeah. They've also yeah. been uh, big players in all of my campaigns, helping me make videos and and photos, and actually donating themselves, and um, and also learning a little bit about their culture. I remember when my daughter lost her first tooth, <laughs> and uh, we got on Skype, <laughs> and that was another friend who told me. I said, "What do you do in Cambodia when a kid loses a tooth?" And he said, oh, well, if it's a lower tooth, we throw it on the roof so the tooth will grow up. And if it's a – I'm going to mess this up. If it's a upper tooth, we throw it under the bed so the tooth will grow down. And he gave me the uh, – he taught us the uh, <coughs> Cambodian word for tooth, and I made a little video around it, you know, kind of um, the tooth fairy around the world. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. So to what do you attribute your – 300,000 Twitter followers. And I say that with a, de- with a degree of salt, knowing that like 90% of the content on Twitter is produced by like 10% of the people. So, but how did that, that happen? I'm impressed that you have 300,000 well, followers. I don't think you should be impressed, actually. <laughs> I just wrote about this a while back called Measure the, um, Measure the Impact, Not the Influence. Right. Okay, so let me tell you what happened. I, I have built up a you know, I build up a following one person at a time, one community at a time, and I do a lot of what I call network weaving. So I um just do nice things for people, connect people, um, get to know who they are, you know, um and weave them into this sort of learning. And so I had built maybe a following of about thirty thousand or so and that was back in October. And I was an early adopter of Twitter. I got on in two thousand six. Oh, boy. Okay, there you go. Yeah, and my first tweet was, what the heck is this? This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) And I actually screen captured it. 
And I tried a few times, and you know, and then I drank the Kool Aid and found value in it. Um, but they, I was put on the uh, Twitter suggested user list, and I was—I remember I was just about to fly off to someplace, and I noticed all of a sudden my my followers doubled, and I just thought, oh well, Twitter's broken, something weird's happening. And then it kept on happening, and then I found out kind of by accident, oh, I'm on the Twitter suggested user list. Oh, that's how that happened. Got it. Yeah. So, but what I've noticed is that because they have the numbers, you're getting people who are just getting onto Twitter. They may not know who I am and what I'm about, and they and they just subscribe to everybody. Right. To me, what's really valuable is to have a passionate and connected and spirited followers group. And if that's a hundred people, that's probably worth more than a hundred thousand people who don't really care. So let me ask you a, a question that came up recently, which is, and this was a blog post you put out there uh, today, actually, uh, or maybe it was maybe it was last week, I forget, about the the Chase charity uh, community thing, because I we were so excited when we, you know we're a small nonprofit organization, we were very excited to be in, in a micro competitive space with the possibility of getting some money, which might amount to maybe ten percent of our budget, you know, which would be fantastic. Uh, really be a meaningful impact, and along with lots of other smaller organizations. And once we saw that groups like, you know, uh, the uh, the National Autism Association, the American Cancer Society, Komen, made this list, like, what's the point of there being some social, you know, corporate responsibility thing going on there when it doesn't have any impact on top of the colossal fa- failure that it's already been? It, where what does that do for trust for my generation in thinking we can actually help and make a difference? Um, you know, <laughs> I'm just going to start laughing. I'm we might sorry. we um, might want to explain the colossal failure because I don't know that there's folks out there. That well, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily characterize failure. it as a colossal failure. Um, uh, the, let me back up and uh, uh, the Chase Giving program. There's been a series of online contests. And I think the uh, the early implementation was the Case Foundation. Yeah. America's Giving Challenge. And I actually want, came in first place for global causes, kind of working my butt off for a Cambodian charity um, to get donations. And I actually had a whole team of people, and and I worked like six weeks straight, going nuts. Um, but that was also when there were fewer um, larger organizations adopting. It was still in the early phases, so it was kind of early adopter advantage. And I also had really built up uh, a network of people that knew about what I, the charity I was raising money for, why I cared, all the stories, etc. cetera. Um, so there's been a series of these different contests, and the, um, w- one of the most recent in 2009 was from Chase Bank, and they decided they were going to give away $5 million, and they were going to do it in two phases. The first phase would be that any charity could enter from a particular database that they had put up, a half a million charities, with budgets under $10 million. And they had to get, uh, get out the vote, and they would, the 100 or so charities that would get the most votes would, would raise $25,000 and be eligible for Phase 2, which where the 100 organizations would compete for a top prize of a million, and then f- the next five highest vote-getters would get 100000 um, this is basically the, the ones that got the, the, the most votes. It was a, a popularity contest. So um, in phase one, um, they, they, a couple of things happened, and it was right before the holidays, so it didn't really escalate. Uh, 
they decided to disqualify two of the a uh, couple of the groups uh, because they quote weren't in line with their corporate giving philosophy. Right. And they actually said that in the rules. If you read the fine print, you know, they said they could choose to disqualify any organization whatsoever based if you know for any reason. <laughs> you know, along with other Fantastic. Yeah, any other loyalty disclaimers. And, um, and and the groups that they disqualified were um, the, the marijuana groups, <laughs> the pot groups, right. the legal, you know, the students for responsible Legalized drug policy. Heroin. Yeah. And so those students got really angry because they felt like they got cheated out of the twenty-five thousand dollars, and they started a protest, and there was a sort of an angry mob scene, and that kind of there was no, I don't think, any official response from Chase on why they disqualified them, anything. There was also an uproar. Um, so there were a lot of blog posts. There was an uh, article in the New York Times. Um, and the other major complaint lodged against them was in these types of contests, there's a, a leaderboard which shows who's in real time, showing who's at the top. And that is really important because that helps people mobilize their supporters. What they were doing in phase one was people, you, in order to see where you were compared to others, you had to go check all the other people. <laughs> You know, spend, and in fact, there was a couple of volunteers who were gathering all that and putting it into a spreadsheet. So they did in the second phase. They added a leaderboard, um, and they debuted that earlier this week. Unfortunately, the contest launched right on the heels of the Haiti disaster. So I know um, on on their Facebook fan page, there were a lot of people saying, "Vote for Haiti, vote for Haiti." Um, you know, give the money to Haiti. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, Chase actually was very, quite generous and donated something like a million dollars to Haiti. And so now this sort of um, the hundred are now competing, um, and they have until the end of the week. And what I've been noticing, I wrote a piece this morning just looking at who was at the top and who was at the bottom, and it looks like two of the organizations with larger budgets and with huge fan pages, fan page numbers are kind of at the top. Right, and, which goes back to this whole thing that we're talking about today, which is trust and fairness and equity uh, within uh, sort of the social responsibility market and, you know, how nonprofits really aren't treated equally, yet the corporations may not appreciate or understand this, and they're just in it to make themselves look good. Well, you know, if you go, if go look at the Pepsi con- um, contest, now, Pepsi has also launched a huge contest. Um, right, $30 million asking, or something? Yeah, $20 million, and it's sort of a contest every month, a Vote for Me contest. But they've done different divisions. I, I, I was really quite impressed with it because they have, like, a division for small organizations, medium-sized organizations, and large organizations. And you choose what – and, of course, the, the money scaled based on where, how right. you enter. But it's, um, it's not everybody in one place. It's much smarter. I, I actually answered the yeah, so I thought they had a really thoughtful approach. I have a question. Is it fair that, you know, like nonprofits such as ACS and Coleman that have over a billion dollars hard cash in the bank be in the running for, you know, a $100,000 prize that, uh, you know, other struggling nonprofits would be happy to take, to take or to, like, to uh, in order to succeed and survive without, you know, folding in this economy, they would need that money? Like, is it fair that these bigger ones are, are in the running? Well, you know, that's all, you know, I, I guess there's certain things we can't control, right? Right, <laughs> exactly. Right, and, and, and you know, know, and knowing that it's a popularity contest at the same time, these, these 
these groups do have, you know, millions of people and millions of followers, so it's easy for them to, you know, jump up in the in the ratings or whatever. Right. I mean, I, I will say in their kind of in their defense, <laughs> I mean, it was probably a, a, a hard thing to change the way that they've always operated in the past. They wanted to change the way they were giving their grants out, and they wanted to look at a potential for new grantees. And if you read their kind of press release about the conference uh, about the, the contest, that's you know one of the things that they achieved, and if you look at the hundred that are on the list, I think like two or three of them have only been previous grantees of Chase. I mean, that was one of their goals. Interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> so uh, we're running out of time here, but can I get your, your last-minute thoughts on sort of the state of the nonprofit world, either in social media or not, if given the um, – uh, if you're familiar with the sweeping changes – that are now happening through the IRS in terms of oversight and governance and like the Sarbanes-Oxley creep, uh, making sure that everything is on the up and up with a goal that I've heard in, in, you know, in, under, you know, under confidential conversations that don't matter anymore from years ago, that the IRS is really trying to, to get rid of like two-thirds of the charities in this country because they're all grossly mismanaged and waste the generosity of our public. I have two minutes to answer that. <laughs> yeah, no. to answer that, you have 30 seconds. You have 30 Matt used a minute and a half. Oh, yeah. I, I can dodge it some more, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we have a few minutes. I'm just curious to, if you have something well, simple think, about well, that. Well, it actually is a big um, – it was a big theme in the book I just finished writing with Allison Fine called The Network Nonprofit that will be published by Wiley in June. Yeah, I can't and, wait to read that. And it's all about, like, working in a networked way. Like, I think – that there is an issue with that we have so many nonprofits and there's a lot of duplication of services and programs and everybody's trying to be their own vertical monopoly and do everything. And I think if organizations can kind of internalize the use of social media effectively and kind of focus on what they do best and kind of network the rest, maybe this can get past some of those issues. That was a great answer. I can't wait to still be here in five years and see two-thirds of the charities gone. That would be fantastic. <laughs> well, you it's could also, the other big, I mean, the other big issue in, in nonprofit land, and it gets back to some of your earlier questions talking with Ravit about strategy, um, you know, nonprofits, or many of them, are slow to adopt. Yes. While we are tipping the tuna in it, and there is more out there than we have, than there were in 2006, 2007, there's still quite a few that are very content to still do business as usual and aren't really engaging on social networks. And I think, you know, I think down the road, if they don't, it's going to be, they're going to be playing catch-up. Yep. A and, hard and, game of catch-up. And a lot of them call me and say, we don't know what to do. And I was like, good luck with that. Because <laughs> you can't teach people about something that they don't understand as a utility. It's not a, it's not a you know, like um, people view social media as like a solution. And it's not a solution. It's a tool. It's a utility. It's part of a, a portfolio of strategy. And right, and most a lot of nonprofits are looking at it as um, with a, a high degree of skepticism. Right, What's exactly. the value here? Why do, we don't need to bother with this? It's just it'll go away. Can I toss in one last, just apropos of that, real quick? Absolutely. This a similar question that we asked Ravit: the picture of the changing landscape of social media. What does it look like to you, one, two, five years from now? I mean, people still talk about oh, tw you know, Twitter, Twitter won't last. Twitter's a fake, you know. What's here? What's going to stay? Is it all? Is it all going to blend? What do you see it looking like? 
couple years down the road? Well, I hope that uh, once the tools become technically boring, then it becomes socially interesting. And what I would hope to see would be whatever, if we go through a consolidation or not, then I would hope to see more nonprofits have um, become social, more social inside, <laughs> and that transforms their approach to using these tools to crowdsource ideas, to be more transparent, and, and to really to build stronger relationships with their um, audiences and networks, to be able to, to leverage and see real outcomes and real social change. Okay. Good answer. Thank you, Beth. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Okay, well, thank you. Take care. All right, you take care of yourself, and good luck with everything. Safe travels when you go back to Cambodia. Great. Thanks so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Beth Cantor, everybody. That could have possibly been the single most intellectual show. (laughs) I didn't understand (laughs) one part of this show. It didn't start off that way at the top with just the three of us. But yeah, we, we brought it down, came, it came way back up, and we're just going to wreck it It now. went so high, it went right over <laughs> my head. <laughs> but it was a good show. It this is really, really show. important stuff out there, and it forms the uh, the framework behind what I believe is, is really making our brand soar, having an understanding and appreciation for what kind of value we can bring, while not just, you know, there's another, not just raising awareness, but actually mm-hmm. taking action and getting people to do things. That are that are fostering that change. Doing things is good. Doing things is doing good, good things. It's good. Doing yeah. good things is very right. good. Well, with that said, I guess that's the end of our show, and now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internet. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, folks, that's tonight's show. I hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer. I'd love to thank our guests, Adam Dockman, Ravi Lichtenberg, Beth Cantor, in our studio here, Amanda Freeman and my wife, Jess Feldman. Next week's show, January 25th, Young Adults Unite with the Live Strong Young Adult Alliance. In our Survivor Spotlight, Allison Ward, Young Adult Survivor of Aaron Cancer, champion blogger, friend of the family. Kelly Craddock, director of the Young Adult Cancer, I'm sorry, director of the Live Strong Young Adult Alliance, Young Adult Cancer Advocate. And Andy Miller, executive vice president of mission for the Lance Armstrong Foundation. Big show, folks. Come back next week if you miss any of our previous shows. Check out the archives at stupidcancershow.com or subscribe to our podcast at itunes.i2y.com. Remember, if it's not stupid, it's not cancer. We'll see you all back here next week live from the chemo deck. Jack Buffard, Amanda Freeman, Lisa Bernhardt, Captain Stubing, and I wish you all a great week. Good night, everybody. Who should we say good night to? Or go to bed, Jason Block. Go to bed, Jason. Fucker out. <laughs>